This is Undark. We're a science magazine published by the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT, and we're this podcast. Hello again. Welcome to Episode 3. I'm David Corcoran. At the dawn of the new millennium, Congress passed a law filled with promise. It was called the Children's Health Act of 2000. And the goal was nothing less than to find out what made some children sick and others healthy. Scientists were going to fan out all over the country to find a representative sample of 100,000 children and follow them from conception to age 21. They'd look for the causes of perplexing disorders like asthma and autism. It would be the largest children's health study in history. What could possibly go wrong? Well, as it turns out, everything We're joined now by Charles Schmidt, the author of this month's Undark cover story, The Death of a Study. Hi, Charlie. Hi, David. So let's go back to the beginning. Tell us about the origins of this study, who was behind it, how they hoped to accomplish it. Well, the study was conceived uh, during the mid-1990s. There was a lot of concern, scientifically, uh, about rising rates of asthma, as you had said, diabetes, and a host of other childhood health conditions. And the concern was that these uh, conditions, that the rates for them seem to be rising faster than, uh, than genetic changes might explain. Uh, when you assume childhood health conditions are, are really a, a confluence of environmental exposures and, and genetic factors, and they interact with each other. And if it turned out that the rates were rising faster than, than what genes could explain, then that would point to environmental factors. And the research was suggesting that the most vulnerable period for children was in the earliest stages of development, when their nervous systems are still developing at the very youngest stages. And so the idea was to put together something called a a birth cohort study. And that's a a, a particular kind of study where what you do is you assemble uh, women who are still pregnant, and you enroll them to the study and then follow their children over time. And at the same time uh, that you enroll the children, you would look for contaminants, so you'd sample their environments, sample their homes, sample their bodies, hair, fingernails, etc., looking for associations, statistical associations between diseases that the children might develop later in life and what they had been exposed to at the very earliest stages in their lives. So the idea was to assemble this birth cohort of 100,000 children, which was going to be the largest birth cohort study that had ever been attempted in the United States. The scope of this was, was designed to embrace really the exposures that all children theoretically in the country could, could be dealing with. And that, that explained the size of it. And, uh, and it had, the concept had a lot of uh, congressional supporters. And so during the late years of the Clinton administration, they passed the Children's Health Act, which called for this study. It was going to be called the National Children's Study. And it, it was authorized by Congress just prior to when George W. Bush took over as president in 2000. So uh, what was this all supposed to cost back in the year 2000? Well, cost projections were a big issue. Um, the, the study's first director was a guy uh, called Peter Scheidt. He was a pediatrician. Uh, he had pre- previously been a, a professor at, at George Washington University. And during the early days of the study, he and his boss, Dwayne Alexander, who was the director of the National Institute of uh, Child Health and Human Development, that's one of the institutes at the NIH, and by the way, it's where uh, um, the, stu- the management of the study was concentrated, they uh, had predicted that the study would cost $3 billion over its lifetime. But it's sort of unclear how they came up with that number. They did it without any protocols, without any study designs being formulated yet. 
but they were held to that number over time. And, uh, and that turned out to be a big problem for them, especially because as they started forecasting based on, on true projections of what was really going to be involved in the study, the cost started to go through the roof. The initial $3 billion projection uh, within a few years was topping you know, $7 billion, uh, which is approximately, you, know, you could think of it as $70,000 per child over the lifetime of the study. Yes, you could think of it that way. That's that's an awful lot of money. Was something in the design of the study or the assumptions that uh, that the uh, researchers initially made kind of went off the rails? What happened? Well, in the early years of the study, you had two different lines of thought about how it should be carried out. Um, the, the, really, the de- debates over the uh, over the study design fell pretty cleanly along uh, along sort of a central divide. On the one hand, you had one group of people that were advocating uh, for what they call a nationally representative sample, and that's a statistical approach that would theoretically give every child in the country an equal probability of being enrolled into the study. And the motivation for that was that they wanted to be sure that they didn't oversample certain populations to the exclusion of others and, and miss exposures that might be harming certain groups of children that we would have needed to know about. But that was going to be very hard, labor-intensive, expensive. You know, they would have to use census information to find neighborhoods that represented the most typical American households. And then they would literally have to go door-to-door in those neighborhoods to enroll women who are either already pregnant or of childbearing age uh, who might be getting pregnant within the next few years. The other group wanted to go with a, a simpler approach called convenience sampling, which meant basically that scientists could go to prenatal clinics that were located near the centers that were conducting the study. The idea there was that since virtually all women, and it's about 98% of them, go for at least one prenatal visit, they could get a large, diverse population that would accomplish what the study was looking for. And what happened was that the folks that were pushing for the representative sample won that debate. And that's what they ended up going with, you know, the most statistically pristine, but also the most expensive and challenging approach. And, and really, they went with that because the statisticians that were advising the study thought that doing anything else simply just wasn't going to be worthwhile. And, you know, that was a very passionate debate, and, and, and people took very strong positions one way or the other. Was it then that uh, people started to get an inkling that things were going wrong, or did that happen later in the game? Well, you know, one of the things that happened was that nationally representative sampling was based on a, on a, on a crucial assumption, and that was that uh, clusters of neighborhoods that had been selected using these census-based approaches would deliver 1,000 live births over a four-year period. And that was important because the idea was that within four years, they hoped to get to this cohort of 100,000 kids. But it turned out that the census uh, predictions were overly optimistic and the birth rates were too low. And that was one of the first big things that happened, they, the, the dawning on the whole project that it was going to be really difficult to get to 100,000 in, in, in a reasonable time frame. It took them years, didn't it, to actually start collecting the data that they were going to use in the study? It really did. And, and that's because so much time went into the design of the study. I mean, when you think of what you're trying to do here, uh, uh, assemble clusters of neighborhoods across the entire United States and, and then set up an infrastructure for sampling those neighborhoods, uh, that took a lot of work. Huge uh, community outreach campaigns were involved. There was lots of work went into developing relationships with local hospitals, 
The idea being that you would have teams of people there when the woman was giving birth, and they would collect samples of placenta, uh, cord blood, um, the infant's first fecal sample. All, all of this infrastructure had to be laid, and that took a lot of time. So it's true that the study was launched in 2000, but they didn't actually go into the field until the spring and summer of 2009. It reminds me of this uh, these debates that we're having right now about presidential election polling and how to find the proper sample and how to weight your sample for groups that are underrepresented and so on. But um, this is like they were designing a poll for the 2000 presidential election, and they didn't actually start polling until the 2008 presidential yeah. election. Yeah, that's a good analogy. And of course, part of the complication is, at first, you're not sampling children, you're sampling their mothers while the children are still in the womb or even yet to be conceived. That's right. Yeah, you're polling their mothers. Uh, and, and that uh, brings up a good point, David. One of the things that um, was important to the folks that were designing the study was that they would enroll at least 25,000 uh, women prior to conception. This is the preconception cohort where they would go door-to-door, uh, -door, not just looking for women who were pregnant, but also women who might get pregnant really within the next five years. That was the, uh, that was the duration they were looking for. And the idea would be that they would keep in touch with these women over time and check in periodically to find out if they were pregnant. And that was another very controversial aspect to the study. Some people thought it was just preposterous that you would go and knock on doors looking for pregnant women. And as it turned out, uh, many of the women that were actually enrolled into the study before they were pregnant were lost to the study within five or six months. You know, they were young. They would change cell phone numbers. They'd change addresses. And a criticism that was made here was that the study designs had paid too much attention to how they were recruiting, uh, in particular, these, these, these women before pregnancy and not paying enough attention into how to keep them after they had been enrolled in the study. So let's talk about uh, the study itself and the actual data collection and how they were going to use the data. They started finally doing the interviews in, what, 2009, and uh, now it's 2016. What happened here? How did things finally unfold? How did we know that the, the thing had gone fatally off the rails? Well, one of the things that happened was that you can think of the study as having two separate eras. In the first era, there was under Peter Scheidt, there was a huge problem that happened, and that was that, the, the, as I said, the cost of the study had been underestimated, so that when Scheidt came in with his $7 billion estimate, his congressional supporters, people that were trying to continue to fund the study despite the Bush administration's objections to it and their efforts to try to kill it, were just shell-shocked. It took everyone by surprise in the Congress, and so he was laid off. And they brought in a new guy who was widely thought among the people that were working on the study simply didn't have um, the right kind of experience to manage it. The other thing was that the program office that had been set up to oversee the study in the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, there was a lot of junior level staff in there that had no experience in, in, in managing something of this kind of scale. And so they started making all kinds of changes to the study design that the folks out in the field really had a lot of problems with. So essentially what you wound up with was uh, a real collapse in the relationship between the people who were in the field and the people who, that, who were managing the study, a, a real loss of respect. 
Many of the officials at the highest levels that you write about uh, would not talk to you, but among the scientists in the field, um, they, they seem quite devastated by the failure of this study. What kinds of things did they tell you? You know, and what was conveyed to me was this tremendous sense of frustration, you know, anger, sadness. A lot of these people had devoted years and years of their lives to the study, and they were just apoplectic at some of the management decisions that had come out of the NIH. And the Vanguard directors also felt that they had to answer to their communities. Women had enrolled in that study, many of them enthusiastically, and they were upset when the whole thing was canceled. There were huge issues that came with the loss of contracts. You know, these folks had been awarded multi-year contracts worth millions of dollars. Many people lost their jobs. And uh, there was a, what remains now is this issue of how to answer the basic questions that the study had set out to answer. There's still a lot that we don't know about how environmental exposures are affecting children, you know, in the long run. So uh, train wreck, dumpster fire, choose your analogy. Um, the fact is they, they burned through more than a billion dollars of taxpayer money and wound up with practically nothing. Um, how come this hasn't been a much bigger scandal? I, it's the first time I've heard about it. How, how did you get onto it? You know, I had been reporting a story earlier about the about the study that was resurrected to take the place of the NCS. That there was some money that was left over, uh, about 165 million dollars for this year, and um, and and the the NIH has tried to create a smaller version of the uh, of the study that instead of developing a brand new national birth cohort, they're going to try to string together cohorts that are already in existence. And I, I had been reporting on that story. And as I did, I would talk with people who had been involved in the NCS, and, and a lot of times the conversations would get diverted onto their experiences of having worked on that study, and I was just struck by how angry they were. Uh, there was so much... They, th these people really had a lot to get off their chests. And, um, and then so you asked, why didn't you hear more about it? I mean, one of the reasons was this. I spoke to somebody, very highly placed person, who was emphatic about not going on record with me. And he felt that, um, that the, unlike, for, inst for instance, the Department of Defense, where uh, funding for that can, can be partisan, the National Institutes of Health enjoys a kind of a golden status in the Congress. It has a lot of bipartisan support. And I think there was just a sense that no one wanted to advertise a huge embarrassment for the NIH. And uh, so this person had said, and that's one of the reasons you, you didn't really see any congressional oversight hearings to look into why the study had failed. The study was terminated, and there was a sense that it was just swept under the rug. So uh, was part of the problem just uh, finding the right people to study and recruiting them? Is that, is that a problem that's inherent in all scientific studies like this? Well, there's a, there's, that, that's a great question, and there, and there is an important point to make here, and I'm glad that you brought that up. Uh, there were some people that felt just fundamentally that the United States, because it doesn't have a, a national health system, was, was not going to be able to efficiently follow these women over time. So, you know, what you're getting at here is, A, can you develop birth cohort studies just to begin with? I think that the experience is with some of those smaller regional birth cohort studies that you've seen in different parts of the country, the answer is yes if you have the resources to manage smaller groups of people. Would we in the United States have been able to follow 100,000 children for 21 years? I, I think that the jury is out on that. And there's a strong sense among some of the people that I spoke to that in the absence of a national health system where, you can, where everybody has a number and you can punch it into a, into a national database and see where these people are, uh, that it simply wouldn't have been able to, we couldn't have done it here. 
Some might differ and say that new, tech, new social media technologies that have emerged since the study was launched in 2000, you might be able to leverage some of that to do it. Um, and that was also a criticism of the NCS, that it wasn't designed flexibly enough to accommodate some, some of the new technologies, social media and so forth, that could have made it easier to, to stay in touch with these kids over time. Uh, but there is a sense that it would have been hard to do in the United States. And let me just add that there are uh, large birth cohort studies now that are ongoing in different parts of the world where there are national health systems, for instance, in Japan and in Sweden. And uh, there is a sense that maybe these kinds of studies are better suited for, for those kinds of systems. Charles Schmidt is a science writer based in Portland, Maine. You can read his cover story, The Death of a Study, on our homepage, undark.org. Charlie, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. For our science and media segment this time, we're joined by not one but two Undark columnists, Paul Rayburn, who writes our Tracker column, and Aleshu Bayak, uh, who is co-anchor of the Cross-Sections blog for Undark. Hi, guys. Hi, David. Hey there. So you are writing about two unrelated but equally perplexing conundrums of science and the media. Paul, why don't we start with you? Uh, let's talk about this monster called uh, branded partnerships. Uh, should we be very afraid? What are they? We should be afraid. Uh, branded partnerships are arrangements between publishers and primarily industry that are intended to uh, make money for the publishers, I think, first of all, and are said to be aimed at illuminating things for readers. That's where the question comes in. If your sponsor, in a, as in a recent case involving Scientific American, if the sponsors of your press event at the National Press Club in Washington are Johnson & Johnson and a GMO industry group called GMO Answers, you might wonder whether that information will come out in a completely unbiased way. So let me get this straight. Scientific American, a very venerable and respected science magazine, it sponsored a conference. Describe the conference, would you? So it was a conference attended by about 100 reporters at the National Press Club in Washington. And the discussion covered several topics. There were a number of luminary scientists and this was quite a great draw. So, it, as I said, it drew about 100 reporters to discuss various kinds of science. But there it was with industry sponsorship plastered all over it. So Scientific American, which uh, has this kind of impeccable journalistic reputation, is joining up with corporate sponsors who are by no means uh, neutral in reputation. And uh, they're talking about uh, what? What's the topic of the conference? Well, a variety of things, climate science, uh, biology, uh, in part uh, genetically modified organisms and foods. One question we might ask is why Scientific American would set up this kind of program. And I asked that question of Jeremy Abbott, who is the vice president and publisher of Scientific American. I said, you're setting this thing up as a moneymaker, right? He said, well, yes, it is a moneymaker, but we're a money-making for-profit corporation. That's what we do. So I think there's no mystery why... Scientific American would want to do this, and indeed many, many other publications have done similar things. And the idea basically, I mean, it's simple. You know, this adds to their bottom line. 
And I'd love to jump in here if I could, um, you know, in, in exploring branded partnerships and sponsored content at uh, Northeastern's journalism school. You know, I've taken a look at places like Gawker, uh, places like the New York Times with their T-Brand studio, you know, Guardian Labs and Quartz, uh, the kind of uh, high-end business news outlet. And all of them are pursuing these kinds of partnerships, um, at least for the kind of advertorial. So obviously a little bit different from a conference, but at the same time, you have some people that aren't really going to be able to differentiate between kind of what's coming from a sponsor's mouth and what's coming from a journalist's mouth. Of course, newspapers and TV stations and so on have uh, had advertising for years. How does this kind of branded content, branded partnerships, how does that differ from just plain old advertising? Well, one of the big things is is how indistinguishable um, this, this kind of sponsored content becomes uh, from regular journalistic stories. You have essentially news outlets uh, dedicating teams to starting a conversation with a, a brand, say Ford or GE, and then beginning to develop uh, essentially a marketing strategy on the on the magazine's pages or the news outlet's uh, uh, website to kind of carry that brand and, and tell a story. And so you begin borrowing a lot of the tools that are you know being used in, in, in newspapers and magazines to build essentially what looks to be a story around this brand. So it's not just a, kind of a picture of a car. But rather, it's a, it's an entire kind of journalistic article um, with a, with a lead, with quotes, um, with context. That's you know not necessarily cramming the brand down someone's throat, um, but but kind of uh, making it almost indistinguishable from from what a journalistic piece would look like. And to, and to most people, um, they can't really tell the difference. And there's data to back it up. So because last year at uh, the Tau Center and Reuters Institute at, at uh, University of Oxford, uh, they surveyed 20,000 news consumers and found that almost half of them felt that they'd been dis- disappointed or deceived um, having read one of these sponsored articles. Alessio, uh, you're writing about a quite different kind of dilemma, more kind of more of an old media kind of thing. Your article is about another article. Uh, tell us about it. Well, so this uh, happened a couple of weeks ago, um, the beginning of this month, when The New Yorker published an article on epigenetics um, by Siddhartha Mukherjee, right? So okay, those prize. two, two <laughs> mouthfuls there. Uh, what is epigenetics and who is Siddhartha Mukherjee? So epigenetics, um, it, therein lies the rub, right? So the <laughs> it, it is a definition that is... Um, constantly kind of being uh, fought over. Um, the, the idea is that it is the, all the heritable changes um, that, does not, that do not involve the DNA sequence. So we all thought of this to be kind of nurture, right, versus nature. So you inherit a genetic code, that's nature. But then could environmental factors kind of be tagged on to that DNA? Could the blueprint of life also have annotations on top of it. And it's this romantic notion that a lot of people have been writing about, a lot of science writers. And one of them is Siddhartha Mukherjee, who just put out a book um, called The Gene. And an excerpt of that book ran uh, earlier this month in The New Yorker. He is a medical doctor who wrote a a very acclaimed book a few years ago about cancer. Yeah, he wrote The Emperor of All Maladies, a biography of cancer. And, um, you know, he's trying to follow that up with a a book about, uh, you know, inheritance and genetics called The Gene. And 
a piece of that story is epigenetics, so this idea of all that lies above the genetic code. And so that's what he um, wrote a story about in The New Yorker. But pretty much uh, within days of its publication, uh, a group of well-known biologists in the field of epigenetics and gene regulation took to uh, the internet, um, <laughs> as most people do these days, um, to to complain to 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 complain about um, Mukherjee's piece, um, and what they essentially uh, thought he had done, uh, <laughs> vehemently believed he had done. Um, was misrepresent their field of expertise, misrepresent the field of, of gene regulation. And what was his uh, what was his defense? Well, his defense was, you know, something that I think a lot of science writers can fall prey to, which is we find a couple interesting lines of research, and we decide to focus on those, and there's very little space to dedicate to a lot of other stuff. Now, where it became troublesome was he kind of chose some epigenetics research that was very much on the fringe, according to all of these biologists, um, and essentially took that a little bit too far. And it was this deeply personal narrative that was beautiful and, 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 and soaring prose, as one of the biologists uh, uh, called it. Um, you know, true it was, but they thought it was um, playing very fast and loose with the kind of details of, of, of gene regulation, and that epigenetics is kind of uh, not completely understood yet. And, and, and especially the idea of passing things along um, to, to subsequent ge- generations. So, uh, Paul, what's your take on this? How, how could something like this happen where you have an eminent uh, science writer and The New Yorker as well with its uh, vaunted fact-checking and its extremely elevated reputation stands accused of kind of oversimplifying? This is a problem that we have in science, isn't it? That when journalists set out to explain these incredibly complicated and controversial concepts, we, we can get in a lot of trouble. Well, the question is, where do you draw the line between simplifying, which is essential, and oversimplifying, which is problematic? And uh, reasonable people will differ about that. <laughs> and, and when your emphasis on what may be a kind of fringe line of uh, investigation uh, ends up uh, looked at as a kind of a speculative uh, role of, of, of some kind of scientific concept, um, you know, in this case, uh, histone. So, the, you know, a lot of the scientists on the phone were telling me, he could have he could have fixed this all with just a couple of sentences clarifying the role of gene regulation you know and 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 i also like to to mention you know he, i don't know if the new yorker is going to issue any real response um but but mukherjee has been emailing back and forth with pretty much every science journalist who's covering uh, this controversy um and essentially kind of putting it on the, the the back of the editors saying listen we through the editing process we weren't really able to uh you know shed that much light on the history of it, the decades of research that the scientists are are claiming he kind of brushed aside. I guess we're going to have to leave it there for now. Uh, Paul Rayburn writes the tracker column for Undark, and Aleshu Bayak is co-anchor of the Cross-Sections blog. Aleshu and Paul, thanks a lot. Around a reservoir in central Massachusetts, there's a passionate debate that pits conservation scientists against local residents. 
The subject? Of all things, rattlesnakes. Here's Undark reporter Ian Evans. Building public support to set aside conservation land for any animal can be difficult. But saving a venomous snake is especially hard. Understandably, a lot of people have fear of snakes. Marion Larson is with the Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife. Fear, loathing, uh, outright phobias, that's not, that's not surprising. Uh, but but in, the, in the larger ecological picture, as, as some folks are saying, you know, a, a snake is a frog, is an eagle, is a deer. They're all part of our environment, and our job is to maintain the, uh, and if necessary, restore the, the native species, and this is a native snake. That's a surprise to some Massachusetts residents. They tend to think of rattlesnakes as Western or Texan creatures. But rattlesnakes have been a part of New England since before it was New England. During the Revolutionary War, the first United States Marines flew a yellow flag with a coiled, striking timber rattlesnake and the words, don't tread on me. These days, though, you're unlikely to see any rattlesnakes in Massachusetts, even if you're looking for them. Tom French is the assistant director of the Division of Fisheries and Wildlife. Timber rattlesnakes and copperheads are the only two of our 420-odd species that we have listed whose demise was largely intentional from deliberate killing and persecution. The timber rattler is completely gone from Maine and Rhode Island. In Massachusetts, there are only about 200 left, and they're dwindling fast. That's why state conservationists want to create a safe space for rattlesnakes. They want to reintroduce the snakes to an island in the Quabbin Reservoir of central Massachusetts. Even though the snakes would be on an island, some people who live nearby are nervous. Charlotte and Jerry Miller of Belchertown say they just don't feel safe. I don't want rattlesnakes back. Like, I don't want colon cancer or any cancer back. Like, really? I don't want that back. I see no benefit in having them. I see no risk in uh, letting them alone. Right now, the rattlesnakes that might be placed on the Quabbin live in Rhode Island. The snakes are being bred at the Roger Williams Park Zoo in Providence, in a bunker-like room with fluorescent lighting. They're kept with the adult snakes, all under the care of Zoo Director of Conservation Programs, Lou Parati. But again, you'd rather retreat than, than uh, fight. They won't be released for another year or two, when they're big enough that predators like eagles, coyotes, and bobcats will leave them alone. There are just five of them. After they're placed on the island, conservationists would put a few more on the island each year. The biggest hurdle conservationists have is public fear. Lou Parati says that overcoming that could help more species than just the timber rattlesnake. This project is a good benchmark for the conservation of other potentially dangerous animals. You know, think about crocodile conservation, you know, where you, know, you try to sell crocodile conservation to a village who's lost kids to crocodiles. Uh, it's hard. You know, these species deserve every right as that bunny rabbit does uh, to, to survive, but you know, come with these, these challenges. There are many times I think, hey, we have a moral obligation here. Marion Larson with the Division of Wildlife. And that's my philosophy. And as you can see, I'm getting a little bit passionate about it. (laughs) 
There are signs that conservationists may be overcoming early public opposition. An online petition on change.org to block the rattlesnake reintroduction received fewer than 1,500 signatures in four weeks. But another change.org petition calling for protecting the snakes has received almost 1,800 signatures in just three weeks. And a local advisory group, the Quabbin Watershed Advisory Committee, voted five to two in favor of the snakes. And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. Take a minute to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm David Corcoran for Undark.